Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Lovely. Today uh, we begin our 11th tree leaf jukai and ango season, and it's a celebration. Um, the actual celebration of jukai is in January, but the whole road is, well, a party. A serious party. There's a lot of work to be done, but you know, you're going to hear me compare this to many uh, worldly celebrations like a birthday or a wedding, and those take a lot of work too. You know, anyone here has ever gotten married? No, you got to pick out the invitation, you got to invite the guests, you got to choose your shoes. Boy, it's tough. Well, this too is going to take many weeks and months of serious work but it's worth it. Now, what's it all about? That's the question. And that's what I'd like to talk a little bit about today. We're going to look at Master Dogen's Shobogenzo Jukai in a moment. And that was his writing of his approach, his sacred interpretation of the Jukai. And I'm going to tell you that the Jukai can have many meanings, many meanings, and so can Ango. You know, Zen things are just not taken one way. And uh, we say, for example, that a jukai and the precepts are a vow to keep going, to do good, to help the sentient beings and to not do harm. But it's also the universe, you know, like Zazen is just sitting there, but it's also the universe. And so there are many ways to look at this. Somebody asked me, why bother to take uh, Jukai? Does it make one an official Buddhist? And I said, yes, but no. I mean, not really, but yes. I mean, does getting married make you officially a couple bound to each other? Well, no, but yes. It's in your heart, you know. Let me explain. Let me explain. To practice this way, we sit Zazen. But Master Dogen and many of the other great Zen masters said that, you know, the precepts are Zazen, and Zazen is also the precepts. What do they mean by that? Well, basically the precepts, as we're going to see in the coming weeks and months, is a vow to be gentle, to be kind, to be generous, to be nonviolent to have a heart that is free of excess desire as best you can and to abandon as best you can divided thinking like jealousy and uh, resentments, that kind of thing. And you kind of need that 
to really get the fruit of Zazen. You know, if you're a mean, angry, greedy person and then go to practice Zazen, it's the tree is not going to blossom as beautifully as if you're someone who plants soil that's free of that anger, that's free of that excess desire. And you'll really taste the fruits of Zazen when you cultivate what the precepts are trying to point you to. A lot of modern people say that the precepts are kind of, uh, what would you say? They're not rules. They're not laws. You're not going to get the electric chair if you violate one. They're not the Ten Commandments. I don't think that uh, lightning is going to strike you if you violate one. Uh, in the old days, they would say the karma, man, if you violate one, you may come back as a puppy dog or a, a snake or something in the next life. Uh, I don't know about that. But I know that if you don't live free of excess desire and anger, you're going to have hell in your own heart. And you're going to make terrible hells for the people around you. We see that all over the world. People who do damage to themselves, people who do damage to, the, to their society, to their families, to their kids, because inside they're so filled with anger and greed and violence and division and jealousy, right? So I don't know about the hell in the next life, but I sure know about the hells in this one. And so the pre precepts, many modern teachers will say, are something like guidelines or arrows that point us in a good way. A healthy way, a beneficial way, not only beneficial to ourselves, but to those around us who are all united, you know. And that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. So the precepts facilitate Zazen, and Zazen hopefully facilitates the precepts, because when we sit Zazen, the heart softens. We put down the anger, we put down the greed. So the precepts make Zazen more fruitful, and Zazen hopefully makes the precepts easier to live by. You see, it's a nice cycle there. And it makes all your life better. Would you rather live as a greedy, angry, selfish guy? We got a lot of that going on in the world these days, don't we? Or would you rather have a heart of peace? Kindness, ease, not so jealous, content, you know. I'll go for the latter myself. That's what I'm doing here. Now, so why do you need the Jukai ceremony? Well, you know, the, if you're going to get married, you don't need a wedding. In other words, what I mean is the wedding doesn't make you fall in love. And the way wedding doesn't make you take a vow to be together through sickness and health till death do us part, right? The, the ceremony is just a celebration of that. Hopefully before the fact, you've fallen in love and you're committed to this person, right? I also sometimes say, you know, a birthday is a celebration of growing older and wiser. The birthday party itself doesn't make you older. You're going to get older anyway. The birthday party just celebrates that fact that we gather together with our friends and loved ones 
to celebrate that we've become older and wiser. Well, the wedding ceremony too, hopefully is a celebration and an affirmation of what is already there. So if you're serious about this Buddha way, you're going to make a kind of, uh, not a kind of, you're going to make a vow in your heart. I want to practice this way. I want to stick with this way. I want to live in this direction. I want to learn about the Buddha's teachings. I want to commit to my fellow practitioners because we support each other. That's Sangha. I want to commit a vow of commitment, a vow to stick with it, right? We're vowing just like in a, a good wedding to commit to each other, to stick with it, to learn this Buddhist way, to help the other, help the other sentient beings in this case, to be part of a family, right? The Sangha members, we support each other. So there's a vow. So if hopefully you're already living by the precepts and hopefully you've already made the vow to keep going and to help others, to learn. So if you've done those things, the Jukai is a celebration of what already is, just like the wedding is a celebration of what is. The wedding is not going to make a good marriage, but a good relationship will make the wedding. Just like your good sense of practicing with sincerity makes the Jukai. So does the Jukai ceremony make you a real Buddhist? Hopefully you're walking the Buddha, Buddha's way, you see. And the ceremony just celebrates that. Okay. So, today is our first day of the Jukai season, and you're going to be looking and reflecting on the meaning of all this in the coming weeks. And you don't have to commit until the day, you know, the, the five minutes before the ceremony, you can decide you're out the door. This is also a process to find out what this means to you, right? Just like you can, you know, like in the movie, The Graduate, you can run out of the, you know, the ceremony and catch the bus and get out of there. We're, I'm not obligating you, no guilt trips here, if you decide not to take part in the Jukai. This is for you. So you can find the meaning of these precepts. You can find the meaning of the ceremony in the coming weeks as we sow the Raksu, as we reflect on the different precepts. Today, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Master Dogen said about the meaning of all this in something he wrote many hundreds of years ago called Jukai. Shobogenzo Jukai. And he laid out in there basically the same ceremony we're going to be doing in January. Now, the ceremony, you may know, is really the same ceremony for lay people or the ordination of a priest. The words and the rituals are almost the same. In Japanese Zen Buddhism, the vows that a priest takes to become a priest and the vow of a layperson taking the Jukai ceremony, what we call the lay ordination or undertaking the precepts as a layperson, are the same 
Bodhisattva precepts. What's the difference? The difference is really the lifestyle that the particular practitioner needs. Some people will say, take the vow about not misusing sexuality, for example, and say, I'm going to be a celibate monk in a monastery. Other people will say, I'm going to be a married husband or wife and father or mother to children. They take the same vow in our way. Some people may need to go to the monastery and live removed from the society a little more. Some people practice in the heart of the society. What's the difference? Now, you may think that the fellow, it could be a woman, man, in the monastery is more serious as a practitioner than the layperson because they've given up everything and they've gone to the monastery and they've cut off all ties. And they don't have a day job like you do and they don't have kids. They're just in the monastery doing Buddhism 24-7. So they're more serious than you are. Dogen Zenji and even the Buddha, surprisingly, were not quite always saying that. Let me explain. That image is not completely right. The Dogen sometimes said to lay people, there is absolutely no difference between practice in the world and practice in the monastery. He's quoted in Bendowa saying that people who think that practice is only in the monastery, not in the world, don't know that there's no place that the Buddha is not. A few years later, Dogen was always, you know, the kind of guy who is, he's kind of like some of our politicians sometimes, I have to say honestly. He knew his audience. If he was talking to monks, he would say, monks, man, that's the way to go not those lay people. And he was talking to lay people, he'd go, oh, lay people, that's the way to go. So Dogen sometimes gave talks, maybe his mood changed because he was in the monastery, he was in Aheji, he was in the boondocks of Japan, living with these monks day in, day out. And he told the monks, monks, you know, you gotta be monks, monks is serious practice. But you know what? The Buddha, and Dogen actually said that the monks have to be monks because they need help. They need to get it away. They can't survive in the world. As that, the world, practicing the world, the Buddha said, is not impossible. He said that's the dusty practice, the hard way. The easy way is to cut yourself off from that. If this practice is true, that being in the world of samsara, this ordinary crazy world, is enlightenment, then where you are in your job with your kids, with dealing with the traffic and the taxes and the crazy boss, is as much the Buddha as being in the monastery and dealing with the incense and the crazy monk boss 
and the paperwork that they had to do. Don't you think you go to the monastery, you escape the government paperwork. They got to pay their taxes kind of too. I mean, there's a lot of administrative bookkeeping when you're in the monastery. It's a company. You see. Your ango is a real ango. Last year I gave a talk on ango and it's very interesting. Dogen's talk on ango. I just want to mention this briefly. Dogen goes on for 15 or 20 pages of the most detailed procedures for monks in a monastery to spend their three-month ongo period. But at the end, he adds a little escape clause. He tells a story. The story is about Manjushri, who shows up on the last day of ongo out of the blue. You know, everyone's been sitting ongo. Manjushri walks in the door the last day and says, I'm here. And Mahakashapa, who is kind of a tight, tight, tight butt, says, what are you showing up the last day? That's, you can't do that. You're supposed to be here the whole time. And he grabs a hammer and he's going to knock it. It means you're out. Get out the door. You're expelled. And the Buddha suddenly appears and says, Mahakashapa, cool it. Manjusri was doing his ango wherever he was. And at that moment, a vision appears, like we've been talking about emptiness, a vision of worlds upon worlds. And in this vision, there's endless Mahakashapas trying to expel countless Manjusris. And countless Manjusris are doing their ango in endless places and worlds. In other words, there's no place where the ango is not. According to some of the interpretations, Mahakash, uh, Manjusri was actually sitting his ango in places like a rich man's house and even a bar or a, a body house, as they would say. And I forget what the third place was. It was something like a marketplace. He was out in the world doing his ango. Dogen put that in there to say that ango too is not just what goes on in the monastery. Ango, and maybe in a sense, the endless ango, the universal ango is everywhere, you see. So don't think that just because you're home, this is not a real jukai. These are not real precepts. Don't think that just because you're home, this is not a true ango. Okay. Now let's see what uh, Dogen had to say. Shobogenzo jukai. In the Western heavens and the Eastern lands, you know, they always got to talk. They can't say anything straight here. That means India and China. By the way, we have someone here from India. Am I missing? No? Okay. I thought that one of our, we have a couple of Indian members now. And uh, I thought uh, possibly one of them was going to join us today. In the Western ha heavens and the Eastern lands, wherever the transmission has passed between Buddhist patriarchs, at the beginning of entering the Dharma, there is inevitably the receiving of the precepts. Number one, I have to apologize. This is my teacher's translation from the 1970s and 80s, and apparently we're still a little sexist back then. You notice they use the word patriarchs. Let's just, I'm going to try, maybe I'll miss a few. Let's just change, change this to ancestors, anywhere it appears. 
you know, we've now recognized that this was a bit of a boys club picking up the conservative values of the Western heavens and the Eastern lands, which were very conservative male-oriented societies. But there was a lot of women there too. Said and unsaid, known and unknown. So let's just say this transmission has passed between Buddhist ancestors. And at the beginning of entering the Dharma, there is inevitably the receiving of the precepts. By some interpretations, you don't take the precepts after you've been practicing a while. You should take them at the beginning. It's the best start. And really, you can take the precepts anytime, and you can take them countless times. I've said that I know people who take them every year, like you celebrate a birthday every year. You can renew your marriage vows anytime you want. Renew them every day. There's no limit to the number of times you can do this. And some people say that, you know, the precepts is actually enlightenment itself, just like our Zazen is enlightenment itself. When we sit Zazen, there's not one thing to attain. There's not one other place to go. Some interpretations say when you take the precepts, all the precepts are realized. There's no precept broken. And everything is in perfect working order. So taking the precepts is actually the fulfillment of your vows. You see. Many ways to look at this. Now Dogen said, without receiving the precepts, we are never the disciples of the Buddhas and never the descendants of the ancestral masters because they have seen departing from excess and guarding against wrong as practicing Zazen and inquiring into the truth. Now, again, I don't think he's talking necessarily about the ceremony, but without in our heart undertaking the precepts and committing to the vow. Yes, we're not true students. We're not, we're not truly walking this way. So this is very important. It is vital to this way that we depart from excess and guard against wrong. It's vital that we practice Zazen and find the truth. You see, that's what he's saying. He continues, the words, the precepts are foremost, already are the right Dharma treasury itself. To realize Buddha and become an ancestor inevitably is to receive and maintain the right Dharma eye treasury. Therefore, ancestral masters who receive the authentic transmission of the right Dharma eye treasury inevitably receive and maintain the Buddhist precepts. Zazen is realization, is truth is the Buddha's truth. It is everything. There is nothing left out. Zazen is the precepts. The precepts are the Buddhist truth. There's nothing left out. There cannot be a Buddhist ancestor who does not receive and maintain the Buddhist precepts. I think Dogen thought these precepts were pretty important. He was a pretty straight guy, you know. You can't sit Zazen and go out 
and rob banks and be a hitman and sell drugs that hurt people notice i said sell drugs that hurt people i'm not saying these days if again i leave this to people's heart if someone engages in harmless behavior that's one thing if you're pushing heroin or crack that's another okay There are degrees of doing harm. Dogen was a pretty straight guy. He probably would have been zero tolerance. But in this modern world, I'm going to say that the precepts are pointing us towards behavior that is not harmful, that is beneficial. And if you, let's say, practice Zazen and then go out and, you know, hurt people and steal and cheat, man, you're off base. Maybe you think, oh, the Zazen's helping me because in the Zazen, you know, we drop right and wrong, don't we? It seems like there's a certain amorality to Zazen because we're sitting there going, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's no failings. Everything is just what it is. And that can lead someone actually to a kind of amorality. It's very dangerous. There have been, for example, dictators and even serial killers who practiced some kind of meditation. There was a fellow in Norway, I think, who was a big meditator, and then he went out and killed people because the meditation helped him focus his heart to do violence, you see. That's the dark side, like in Star Wars. We got a couple of people sitting here looking like they got hoodies on. Are you on the dark side, man? You look like the, the guys from Star Wars with the things over your head. There you go. Hey, okay, okay. Not, I was just kidding. I know you're not on the dark side. But there is a dark side. The precepts keep us on the good side. Zazen can go bad. Zazen is very formless, you see. You could go out and use the Zazen to be a better bank robber. So Master Dogen is warning us not to do that. I'm going to continue. Some will receive and maintain them under the Tathagata, the Buddha, which in every instance is to have received the lifeblood. When you take the precepts, you're going to be receiving them directly from the Buddha and all the ancestors. That's what Dogen's trying to say. What they received, which is this truth, this lifeblood, is now going to flow to you. The Buddhist precepts now authentically transmitted from Buddha to Buddha and from ancestor to ancestor were exactly transmitted only to the ancestor Bodhidharma. And then they were transmitted five times in China until they received our founding ancestor, Soke Huinung the sixth ancestor, very famous. And then it split off in various directions through Sagan and Nangako, and so has been conveyed to the present day, and they will be conveyed to you. And then Dogen in his way says, now there are some unreliable old veterans and the like who do not know this at all. They are most pitiful. I'm going to be a little Brad Warner here. Brad Warner would say, Something like, so there are these old dudes 
who think, you know, that they know everything and they say this isn't important, they're a bunch of fill in the blanks. Okay. That's uh, what Dogen's way of saying. You, you got to know the precepts are really important. That we receive the Buddhist Bodhisattva precepts. This is the beginning of entering the Dharma. And it's just what practitioners should know. The observance in which we should receive the Bodhisattva precepts is authentically transmitted in every case by those who have long learned in practice in the inner sanctum of the Buddhist ancestors. Dogen didn't pull any punches. It is not accomplished by negligent and lazy people. You got to be serious about this, you know. I don't say you have to be obsessive, but you got to be serious enough to practice this every day and try to make this gentleness, this peace, this lack of anger part of your life every day. It's can't, it cannot be accomplished by negligent and lazy people. In that observance, in every case, we burn incense and perform prostrations before the ancestral master and ask to receive the Bodhisattva precepts. Once grants, granted permission, we bathe and purify ourselves and put on new and clean clothes, or we may wash our existing clothes and scatter flowers, burn incense, perform prostrations and show reverence, and then put them on. I'd like to talk a little bit about prostrations. When we do the ceremony, there's a lot of bowing. You bow to your parents. Even if you had some difficulties with them, you say, parents, thanks for letting me be here on the planet Earth. You bow to your teachers. You bow to the whole world. You bow to that piece of wood that's up there that represents the Buddha. Why? Just gratitude. Gratitude and thanks and a vow to give back. To make this world better. When we prostrate, a lot of Westerners, you know, in Asia, people are bowing all the time, man. They're just bowing all the time. Sometimes they get down, unbelievable. They, like, throw themselves, you know, completely on the ground, bowing, bowing. In the West, you know, we don't like this. Could you imagine, like, some of our Western politicians suddenly getting down and bowing to everyone? You know, no way, man. We're a handshake at most, maybe a salute. So what's a bow? A vow is humility. Uh, a bow is humility. I vow because it makes me humble. And, you know, we're bowing down to Buddha in a sense, but the Buddha is actually raising us up. We bow to the world in gratitude, but the world is actually raising us up. So it depends how you look at it. Are we going down or are we being lifted? I'll leave that there with you. Bowing prostrations are a beautiful practice. And even if you don't get down all the way, if just a gotcha show like this is a beautiful practice of gratitude and humility and, and uh, just vowing to give back. Okay. So anyway, where was I? Widely, we perform prostrations to the statues and images, which, as I said to me, statues and images to me are a reminder of what we're grateful for and this truth in these teachings. Right, that there, there's no magic power in there except what I put in there in my heart, which is just remembering the truth of these teachings and the power of this way that that represents. And so when I'm bowing, it looks like I'm bowing to that there. That's a reminder to me of all this. 
That's what I'm bowing to. We perform prostrations to the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And we perform, we'll talk about that in a second. And we perform prostrations to the venerable ancestors. We say thanks to the family and all who came before. Now, we don't know exactly who those people were, but thank you for making this way possible for us. Just thank you. you know. Whoever you were who have given us this tradition, thank you. We get rid of miscellaneous hindrances, and thus we are able to make body and mind pure. Those of observances have long been authentically tra transmitted in the inner sanctum of the Buddhist ancestors. After that, at the practice place, the presiding akarya, that's the preceptor, the, that will be me in the ceremony, the person who gives the precepts, who represents all this, instructs the receiver to do these prostrations, to kneel upright and with palms together to speak these words. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Amongst the first discussions we'll have in our precept preparations is what does this mean? I take refuge. Some people coming from a Christian background, they get really hung up on this. Man, anything that sounds like Christianity, man, it just sets off my alarm bells. It's a word. It's a safe place. It's something, it's a shelter. It's something that keeps you safe and tries to help you. It's a refuge. It's a whatever you want to call it. I take refuge in the Buddha. That means the man who started all this, but also the whole truth of the universe, the Dharma, the teachings, and the whole truth of the universe, and the Sangha, the whole community which supports all this. And then we get into the precepts themselves. And I'll close with the first three that we take, which kind of summarize all the other precepts in microcosm. Number one, to seek as you can in this body and life to avoid doing harm. To seek as you can in this body and life to live in a healthful and helping way doing good. To seek as you can in this body and life to live for the benefit of all sentient beings. That's the wording I've developed here at Tree Leaf, but I believe it's basically in harmony with the traditional way of saying this, which is don't do bad, do good, and help others. And all the precepts come back to that. You see, don't do harm to yourself and others. Yourself and others, man, it's one great thing. Do good. Live in a beneficial way for yourself and others. And try to help the others, which is helping yourself. I'm not going to try to fill in the details too much right now because you have weeks to reflect on this and to find the meaning for yourself. So I'll just leave it there. I just wanted to say, Ango has begun. Jukai has begun. This is the real thing, man. It's right where you sit. It's how you live every day. If I just gave you some advice is avoid doing harm. Try to be good. Help others. That's it. And then the rest is just the party. Okay. Some of my uh, uh, priests here uh, have a question. You can either ask a question for yourself or maybe the, if you remember the kind of question we're often asked about Jukai, anything come to mind? Some of the 
Anyone have a question that we often hear? Jonin. Thanks, Indo. It's not a question, it's a um, commentary um, for others. When we are in Angola and studying the precepts for Yukai, we often think we are making a lot of mistakes and that we fell off the wagon and we are very afraid of being too uh, of being judged by others or we judge ourselves pretty hard. And just want to say to everyone that enjoy the mistakes, enjoy them um, every single time you fall off the wagon because that's human nature. That's how we learn. And that's how we grow. And that's how we embrace the Dharma by testing the waters, by experimenting, by committing a lot of mistakes and understanding that um, even if there's no mistake to be made, it's all part of the experience. So just relax, take it one instant, one second at a time. What he said is just so important. I'm glad you reminded me of that. We break the precepts again and again because we're human beings. You reflect, you get up, you dust off, you try to make amends, you try to learn from your mistake, and you start again. Like the alcoholic who hits the bottle again after he's been in the AA for 10 years, it's day one, man. You do your best. You're going to fall down. Hopefully not fall down too badly. We don't intentionally let ourselves fall down, but you're going to fall down. You're a human being. And if you don't think this is important, I want, I'm glad I get a chance to mention some of the scandals with some Buddhist teachers again. There's another um, Buddhist teacher, very famous one, who apparently got himself into a little trouble uh, with his sexual behavior. And it's a scandal. This has happened a couple of places. Don't think that you get enlightened, you turn into a saint, and you never have to worry about the precepts again. Even a teacher can fall down. That's why we need the precepts. And the teacher, hopefully, this fellow, who's very famous for his alcohol and drug treatment program that has saved countless people, but now he's made a mistake. Hopefully, he's going to get up now and go, and today is day one. Okay? Don't try to fall down, and hopefully you don't fall down too badly, but if you do trip and stumble, which we all do, because you're a human being, don't expect perfection, man. You may be like, say, I'm not going to eat meat during this ongo. And suddenly you look down and go, oh, my gosh, that's a ham sandwich in my head. What was I thinking? I forgot. Okay. You're human. Put it down. Get the cheese. All right. Another question. Somebody somewhere. Yes, Jakuden. I, I get to volunteer my students. Yes, Jakuden, I hear your urgent question. Go ahead. Uh, actually, Kionan actually said exactly what I was thinking about falling off the wagon. Um, uh, and I, I just, um, I think that's the key to Ango is, um, really just enjoying the experience and starting over every day. Um, it seemed to me like there were long lists of commitments, um, you know, very ambitious lists of commitments people were making. Um, but um, 
I would just say um, we're all here. If if any of those things seem to be um, a, a lot and you're stumbling, um, remember we're here for you. Um, nobody's like trying to make your make your, your life harder by doing this. This is supposed to be a refuge, you know, a time of reflection um, and, and a time to come together as a Sangha and be there with each other and support each other through it. Um, so if things get hard, you know, that's part of Ongo too. I mean, if you really um, are struggling and, um, you know, everybody always gets to a point where they say life intervened, you know, and well, it's not that it intervened. It's that's what Ango is, you know, it's just life doing its thing. And um, so instead of disappearing or, you know, beating yourself up and saying, well, I'm going to try this again next year or, um, you know, just come and share it with us and, you know, share it in the thread um, what you're going through and let it be part of Ango. Yeah. Cause yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not the religion that says, "Oh, I I committed the sin. I'm going to beat myself on the back and you know, with a whip." You know, we're we're not those people. We are making some vows to give up some things we love or some things we're attached to to learn the value of giving up attachments a little bit to simplify, to know that our likes and dislikes a little bit are are more in our control than we realize, right? And to know the value of living a little bit free of the things we think we need in this world are really just the things we want. And what we really need is something different. So giving up the sweets, which I do every time, and sitting a little more and saying that uh, I'm going to, this thing that I, I'm so attached to doing, I'm going to put it down for a few weeks or months, is good for the heart. But if you fall down and find yourself with the ham sandwich in your hand, despite your vow of vegetarianism, do not then grab a wick, whip and start flagellating yourself. And then I'm giving up jukai. And then like the alcoholic who takes one drink, he says, oh, I broke my vow to have no drinks. And then he runs to the bar and drinks three bottles of scotch. You see, don't be that guy. You fell down a little, start again. It's no excuse to give up. Okay. Uh, yeah, Shingen. Thank you, Jindo. Also, I just want to kind of, it's supporting everything that everybody's also said is also to find with the precepts to there's not one right answer so to allow them to blossom and flourish in in your own life and how you experience them and i'll just kind of give a little story i remember years ago we had a member who i did a practice partner exercise with we were partners and so we were discussing the precepts and he's a police officer and so one of the questions that came to my mind was well you know, we don't want to kill. And I thought, well, of course, he's a police officer. He might have to. So I asked him and he said he really struggled with it at times because he thought it seems to be kind of like a, I'm a hypocrite because I'm trying to save this life, but in order to save this life, I'm taking this life or I'm hurting this person in order to save this person from being hurt. 
But he said eventually as he went along the way, he found, I guess, the boundaries to his precept of not killing or not doing harm different than mine or somebody else's. But that doesn't mean that what doesn't mean that he's breaking the precepts um, or that he's not as good at the precept of not killing or not hurting than me or somebody else. So I think, you know, my encouragement is not to worry that there's is one answer but this is the way you have to do the precepts so allow them to flourish and bloom in your own life and you'll kind of found find this kind of universal boundary to uh, how they apply that is very important too there are many uh religious practices on ethics yeah, try to spell out very much black and white what's right and wrong. And even in uh, South Asian or uh, continental Buddhism, you know, the monks would take 256 precepts, very specific about what not to do. And the Japanese Zen Buddhist, Dogen Zenji, boiled it down to 16 precepts that are very open. Now, what does it mean very open? There are some things that are pretty black and white. For example, I don't think there's anything that's black and white in the precepts about child abuse. There is nothing that says there's a certain situation where child abuse is okay. You know, maybe if you were a doctor and you, you had to temporarily cause pain to a child for medical treatment, there I'm already thinking of an example, but there's nothing about doing violence to a child that is permitted in the precepts, our precepts, anyone's precepts. However, as we go through the precepts, you will find that it is, I'm sorry, we're, we're very much into situational ethics here. And what might be appropriate in one case, you have to ask, is it appropriate in all cases? And we're going to look at this. We say, try not to kill, but a policeman might have to kill in order to actually save life. What about that? Don't steal. Right. What if your family's starving? Huh. Many, we're going to look at these. And that's the process of the next few weeks. Okay. Any other urgent question? Otherwise, we're going to move on. Yes, Sekishi. Go. Well, I, I don't have a, a question, but just uh, to follow up with what everyone has said here, um, with uh, this ongo, and this is going to sound really silly in, in a way, is to enjoy it. Um, we have a lot of things we're going to do. We're going to do, 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 but we are taking refuge in this. This is, this is our practice, our lives, and meeting them head on, and, and finding the good in that and enjoying that. And I'm going to abuse a Dogen quote a little bit. Um, Dogen, it says in, somewhere in Shobogenzo that, that uh, Shikantaza is not learning uh, the art of meditation. It is the Dharma gate of joy and ease. And I feel like we can extrapolate from that and try to do that with our ongo is find some joy and some ease. Even while we wish we had that, that candy bar or the thing that you gave up, enjoy that moment of wanting the candy bar and not having it or 
you know, uh, meeting with your partner and bowing to all the things that come up in your life that are complicated and just meet it head on. And that's, it's a beautiful thing. And I hope we can all enjoy it. Beautifully said there, this, there really is a party and, um, there's nothing about this that, uh, has to be painful, quite the opposite. This is supposed to be freeing and liberating and joyful and bringing you peace and goodness and kindness and openness and, uh, a good life in your heart, right? That's what this is about. So let's get on with the party. Okay. Hey, every good party. We got to move on. All right. Kionin, can we have the verse to uh, close the sutras? Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, discussion, Jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.